Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hello, my name is Charles Ree, Cowan's Healthcare Technology Analyst, and welcome to the Cowan Future Health Podcast. Today's podcast is part of our monthly series that continues Cowan's efforts to bring together thought leaders, innovators, and investors to discuss how the convergence of healthcare, technology, and consumerism is changing the way we look at health, healthcare, and the healthcare system. And with me today is uh, Dr. Corey McCann, President and CEO of Paratherapeutics, a pioneer in prescription digital therapeutics and the first company to receive FDA market authorization for software to treat disease. Uh, prior to PEAR, Corey was an investor with MPM Capital, where he evaluated new healthcare investment opportunities and oversaw strategy and execution of portfolio companies. And prior to that, he was an engagement manager with McKinsey & Company, where he advised pharmaceutical, medical device, and biotechnology companies on the acquisition, development, and commercialization of life science technologies. Corey, thanks for being with us today. Hey, Charles. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks to you and the Cowan team for having me. So, you know, I, I think before talking about the interesting digital therapeutics that you have at PEAR, I think it probably makes a, a bit of sense to talk about the backdrop we find ourselves in, uh, which has been a global pandemic. And I think beyond, obviously, the immediate tragedy of, uh, of those who have, uh, have died, unfortunately, due to the virus, can you talk about some of the other, uh, you know, impacts long-term social distancing, uh, you know, has had on, on people, uh, you know, such as mental health? Yeah, absolutely, Charles. And I think when we think about mental health within the context of COVID, we're really dealing with an epidemic inside of a pandemic. Um, Before COVID, these were huge and pressing issues. And I think if you just look at some of the numbers around uh, the conditions for which pairs lead products treat, you know, there were 20 million Americans with substance use disorder prior to COVID. And there were 30 million Americans with chronic insomnia prior to COVID. I think as you saw social distancing come into place, really it created this perfect storm where there were more triggering events and there was less access to care. And really when you look at the implications of that squeeze, you've seen just a tremendous, tremendous worsening of mental health conditions in the context of COVID. And if we were to look at some different addiction conditions, uh, there was a JAMA study that looked at use um, of different illicit substances between November of 2019 and July of 2020. And for example, you saw things like a 67% increase in positive tests for fentanyl. You saw a 33% positive increase in positive tests for heroin. You saw similar uh, trends for methamphetamine and cocaine. And I think it really just speaks to the, um, uh, the, the exacerbation of what was a previously difficult issue uh, within the U.S. And you mentioned it earlier uh, about uh, a lot of the issues that we're dealing with, right? Uh, you know, obviously, the, even before COVID, this epidemic with opioids, you know, obviously, before COVID, that seemed like a long time ago. Maybe remind us specifically about the problems of opioids in our society. Uh, you know, obviously, that's been plaguing us uh, for, for some time now. Yeah, I I mean, um, certainly if we look across both substance use and opiate use disorder, I mean, this is a major American health crisis, Um, uh, again, in excess of 20 million Americans that are uh, the incident population for, uh, for both of those conditions. And if you look within opiate use disorder specifically, these are patients who create a higher healthcare cost per unit patient. 
their patients whose costs are higher when untreated but diagnosed with opiate use disorder. And it's a set of patients for whom there are efficacious pharmacotherapies, but there's just a tremendous um, need for an ability to provide wraparound behavioral support for those pharmacotherapies. And that's really right where our Reset O product comes to play. You have three products on the market currently. Uh, can you walk us through each of them? Yeah, sure. We have three currently marketed products. There are Reset, Reset O, and Somrist products. Reset is a 90-day prescription product for the treatment of addiction related to alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, and stimulants. And of note, that particular product is a monotherapy. So said differently, it is not for use in combination with a pharmacotherapy. It treats addiction to those conditions uh, in and of itself. The product that came after it was called Reset O, and that was the first prescription digital therapeutic or PDT to receive breakthrough designation. Reset O is an 84-day program to treat opiate use disorder specifically, and the product is indicated for use in combination with buprenorphine as the first drug software combination. Our third product is called Somrist, and Somrist is a nine-week prescription digital therapeutic that is in, intended for use by patients aged 22 years of age and older, and it is for the treatment of chronic insomnia. Of note, this is actually the first product with a label for chronic insomnia. The pharmacotherapies that came before it, things like benzodiazepines and zolpidem, are actually contraindicated for chronic use, and they're only indicated for acute exacerbation of insomnia. That's an interesting point there, and, and may, maybe we can talk a little bit about how, how are your products different than the, like what is the current standard of care in, in sort of each of these cases uh, currently? Yeah, so across each of these cases, um, really these are conditions which are very heavily dependent on human care, which in many cases is not available. And so, for example, for patients who are addicted to things like alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, and stimulants, in many cases, they'll receive uh, some sort of behavioral therapy. In some of those cases, the therapist will be appropriately trained, but in many of the cases, uh, the therapist will not. And the patient essentially has to leave their home, drive to a face-to-face -face therapeutic encounter, and sit in front of a clinician um, and work through some of these different um, cognitive paradigms. Um, in the case of, of substance use disorder, that's usually called intensive outpatient therapy, or IOT or IOP, depending on who you ask. In the context of Reset O, really it's dogma that patients who are opiate dependent need to be on some form of medication-assisted therapy. That can be methadone, it can be Vivitrol, it can be buprenorphine, but none of those pharmacotherapy products are approved for use in and of themselves. They're only approved for use in combination with intensive behavioral support. And really what you have is a dearth of clinicians who are capable of being able to administer that behavioral support. And so you find Reset O as plugging into that existing drug, uh, drug therapy paradigm, but for use as a drug software combination. In the case of Somrist, it's a little bit different. So there you have something that's called CBTI, which is a specific type of talk therapy for insomnia, which is known to be guideline recommended first line treatment. But there are literally hundreds of clinicians who are capable and trained of administering CBTI but there are tens of millions of patients in need. And so as you can imagine from that patient provider mismatch, many of the patients who need 
access to CBTI just are not able to access it um, due to uh, clinician shortages. And so in all of these cases, really these products are intended to work within existing care paradigms to enhance rates of efficacy versus best of breed human intervention, to improve access and patient engagement, to provide data and transparency for clinicians via dashboards, and then to also provide opportunities for population health management for payers. I think the key point in all of this, right, is, is you're embedding, you know, sort of known guidelines and known treatment paradigms, right? Uh, particularly in this case, right, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy kind of underpins, you know, all these products. You know, you know, talk about how that gets, how that gets uh, delivered to patients, you know, and, and why this actually kind of creates a, you know, it seems to me a, a much higher, you know, level of care that you can now deliver to patients. Yeah, so I, I think if, if you think about really optimizing different behavioral therapies for digital use, um, you're able to address the access issue. And you can make these products and you can make behavioral therapies available when the patient needs them and where the patient needs them. And certainly we see use patterns which are consistent with use in the middle of the night um, for patients with insomnia, but also for patients with different addiction conditions. You're able to standardize these different therapeutic paradigms and really make sure that the fidelity of care is best of breed for every single patient use case. And that's something which is very different from what you might see in the real world with a human intervention. Um, but then lastly, you're able to do things like embed different learning algorithms and ultimately customize the therapeutic products in real time on the fly on the basis of individual patients. And that's certainly not an opportunity which is, uh, which is possible for, for traditional human interventions. I, I think, Charles, you make a really good point, and um, I, I just want to sort of make sure to, to loop back around and reinforce the notion that digital therapeutics and prescription digital therapeutics are not necessarily just about CBT, and Pear is certainly not a CBT company. You know, really what we're trying to do is to build out this whole new modality and build a platform around the modality we just really think about different behavioral therapies and behavioral health conditions as being the logical place to start because that's a place where unmet need is as high as it can possibly be. And many of these products have a high probability of technical and clinical success. Yeah, no, certainly. And, uh, you know, uh, I'd like to talk more about the platform in a second, but just before we get there, you know, I think another key distinction, which you kind of highlighted right here, in this case, we're talking about prescription digital therapeutics. Uh, so all of your products require prescription. Can, can you talk about the importance you think here is in having products, your products requiring uh, a physician to write a prescription? Yeah, so I think this is really a question of focus. And you know, just to be really clear, Pear does not create health and wellness products. We only create products which are directly intended for use to treat serious medical conditions. And really, you find that the space uh, bifurcates almost very much like uh, the drugs versus supplements dichotomy. I think you have a number of digital products that are for health and wellness uses, and then you're seeing this emergence of digital products which are for direct disease treatment. To the best of my knowledge, really the only option if one is creating a frank disease treatment is to go down a regulated path. And we strongly believe that this degree of regulatory clarity is, is, is uh, unbelievably important for patients and for clinicians to be able to safely and appropriately use these products. 
I, I mentioned both patients and clinicians because there's something that's incredibly important about the virtuous cycle that one sets up when a patient is using a product in the real world and the clinician is tuning into the dashboard in order to be able to understand all of the data that's being collected in real time in the real world. And you really only get that virtuous cycle when one has a product which is for use in combination with a clinician supervision. Yeah, and, and then that kind of leads into talking about the, the platform itself then. Can you talk about the pair platform, you know, maybe a little bit more what it is and, and why it's important that, you know, as you think about, you know, developing other therapeutics? Yeah, I mean, when we think about this space, we think that scale is unbelievably important. I think it, it is difficult, if not prohibitive, to build up all of the different pieces of infrastructure that are required in order to access uh, single indications and single therapeutic areas. And so really what we've done at PAIR is to build what we think of as the first fully integrated digital therapeutic company. And when I say fully integrated digital therapeutic company, what I mean is that we start with uh, what is foundational and granted IP and an ongoing asset rollup. We've been quite aggressive in, in licensing a whole host of different academic assets. We develop these assets both in-house, but on what is an FDA pre-certified software as a medical device or SAMD manufacturing engine. So essentially, everything that we do is built according to 21 CFR 820 compliant quality management system. So essentially, uh, medical device grade. We layer that into what is the first end-to-end -end modular platform that includes a virtual care experience. So the ability to be prescribed via a telemedicine encounter, but then also a back-end patient services center. That's our pair connect capability. And then really importantly here, we marry that with a commercial org which is able to detail each one of these products to clinicians, to support patients, and then to work with payers on the back end. And so everything that I just mentioned, we built for Reset, but we used exactly that same infrastructure and platform for ResetO, and we used exactly that same platform and infrastructure for Somrest to the point where we're now starting to see some of our payer coverage contracts, including all of our assets. And so very long story short, you know, we have some big aspirations in the space. Really what we're trying to build is the platform to host not just our assets, but the assets of other companies. And that platform is both a platform in the traditional tech sense, but it's also a platform in the traditional pharma or healthcare sense, and that it includes a vertically integrated set of capabilities. When you say it that way, obviously you've, you've gotten approval from the FDA for your first three products. Does this accelerate your process now with, with FDA as you go in next because they've already kind of, they've already approved the underlying infrastructure, so the engine uh, that your products are built on? Like how, how much does that accelerate development? And, and maybe talk about uh, not only maybe speed to market, scale that it delivers, but also maybe cost to deliver as well. Uh, compare, and, and maybe compare that to, you know, what a traditional uh, drug, you know, development timeline looks like. Yeah, I think it's still early days for the space. And so I don't have crisp numbers like we will maybe this time next year as we're moving into our fourth and fifth products. But I think suffice to say, if you think about traditional drugs as costing a billion dollars and taking a decade, we're able to create products that have drug-like efficacy and ultimately some degree of drug-like price for risk, cost, and time 
which is much more favorable for risk capital. And so I think we're still, we're still starting to understand what that looks like at scale, but in the realm of, let's say, four to five years, as opposed to the 10 to 15 year time span for development of a traditional drug. So there are, there are a tremendous amount of, uh, of savings there. Your question around regulatory synergies is also a really interesting one. And, um, you know, as, as people may know, Pair is one of the members of the FDA's pre-certification program. You've got big tech uh, companies like Google, Apple, Samsung, and then big pharma companies like Roche and J&J. And, and Pair has really had the privilege of being one of the small companies that sits in between those industries. We actually were the first company to be uh, examined uh, as part of the FDA's pre-certification path. And then our Somrest asset was the first asset to be reviewed and then ultimately uh, cleared uh, involving the FDA's pre-certification path. And so we believe that this, this is an incredible leg up in terms of developing additional products uh, down our portfolio. But then, you know, as, as people know, software is, is really a living, breathing entity. And part of the advantage of a prescription digital therapeutic is the ability to improve the product on the basis of every single patient who uses it in a commercial context. And so that agility to be able to, in a regulatorily compliant fashion, iterate the product in real time on the basis of, of um, commercial user data is something which is really part of our secret sauce. And we see the FDA's pre-certification program as, as being incredibly helpful there as well. Yeah, no, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And it kind of, kind of leads to my next question here is, you know, want to switch gears a little bit and talk about sort of the progress that you're seeing now with the products in the market. You know, I think in the, the middle of 2019, uh, so long ago, uh, you know, you, you took back uh, uh, marketing reset and reset all back internally, uh, but, you know, but then we had COVID, right? You know, what was it like trying to launch, you know, not only a new therapeutic, but a whole new class of drugs, really, uh, in, in the middle of a pandemic? I would simply call it a multivariable experiment. Um, I think at that particular time, and if we rewind to about a year ago today, you know, you had uh, patients who were becoming afraid to leave their homes because of social distancing. And because of that, you had many clinics who were transitioning to a fully telemodel. And many of the clinics in the addiction space have been consolidated over the course of the past year. So this is something that was quite difficult for them. And you also then had Pair out educating these clinics and these patients on how to use an entirely new therapeutic modality. And as you can imagine, there's a good deal of complexity in that situation and in the messaging that it takes to be successful there. And so that's really what's driven um, a good part of our telefirst approach. And so, you know, prior to COVID, we always knew that the end state for prescription digital therapeutics would be prescription via a telemedicine encounter. So said differently, a patient would periodically see a telemedicine clinician. That could be monthly, it could be quarterly, but then there would need to be something that would fill in the gaps in between those telemedicine encounters. And, and that's very simply for us, prescription digital therapeutics. So we always knew that we would get there. We just didn't know that we would get there in Q1 of 2020. And so we very, very quickly shifted to a digital first approach, uh, making all of our training and all of our prescribing 
things which were possible from a fully remote uh, situation. And then we've since taken it even a step further by integrating uh, a telemedicine diagnostic um, uh, environment in front of uh, some of our different prescription digital therapeutics like Somrest. And, um, you know, I think it's anyone's guess as to what equilibrium looks like after we eventually emerge from the pandemic. But I think it's safe to say that some fraction of previously face-to-face -face care will transition into telemedicine encounters. And really what we've built is a commercial infrastructure that's capable of addressing both tele as well as uh, traditional boots on the ground and traditional clinics, but all the while optimizing on creating a delightful cl uh, clinician experience and then uh, a similarly useful and delightful patient experience. And, and when you talk about this uh, digital first kind of uh, experience, is it pair that is uh, building the network of clinicians to interface with patients or are you facilitating uh, existing clinicians who are treating these type of patients to be able to, um, in effect, almost get referrals as people, you know, for example, if I go to the Somrest website and I go through the questionnaire and I get to the point to talk to a clinician, you know, who, who am I reaching out to at that point? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And there are telemedicine companies that are not us. That, that's not a core competency of us. And, you know, we're, we're effectively a product manufacturer. So we're not in the business of being a, a clinical services provider. Um, that said, we do see the opportunity to, to really create this infrastructure that brings together clinicians and then prescribable digital therapeutics. And so you can think about this as being you know, a fully integrated infrastructure that allows the patient and the clinician to come together, allows the patient to be screened and pre-qualified, allows the clinician to diagnose, write a script, and then does things like dispensation, adjudication, and fulfillment, all seamlessly in real time, all digitally, such that the patient gets on the digital product or the prescription digital therapeutic without leaving their home. So that, that's great, Corey. What we've mostly been talking about, though, if I think about it, right, it, it's kind of following more of a traditional kind of drug, la drug launch model where it's about you know, physician education, helping them you know, set up the infrastructure, how to prescribe, you know, teach them uh, and their office staff how to use it. You know, more recently, though, it seems like you guys been uh, going more direct uh, to payers, uh, having those discussions. I know you have now coverage decisions from a, a number of, uh, of payers, but, you know, obviously opportunities going, you know, directly to states as well. Kind of what led to the change in strategy there? I think a lot of this was largely precipitated by COVID and just the way in which COVID upended the entirety of the American healthcare infrastructure. You know, in a lot of ways, a quote-unquote non-traditional launch plays exactly to the strategies of digital therapeutics as a space. I mean, we're one part uh, traditional pharma, one part traditional tech, and there's a huge opportunity to pull from both. And so when we think about pulling from both, again, this is really opportunities for a non-traditional launch via tele. You know, you're still engaging clinicians, you're still training clinicians, but you don't necessarily have to put a field force on the ground in order to go into clinician offices that are unoccupied. So you can sort of see that that's one way in which COVID has accelerated the transition. Another way in which we're able to have a quote unquote non-traditional launch is that PVTs have the opportunity to collect really robust per patient data sets in commercial patients. 
So if this was a traditional drug, you would essentially run clinical trials, you would run registries, but you would only be able to have data which was collected by some sort of an independent observer, and that's what would roll into all sorts of label expansion and market access studies. And we've been able to do that quite differently here, which is to collect large dossiers of data from commercial patients. And we actually just put out two at the end of last year, one which was uh, a more than 4,000 patient real world examination showing rates of patient retention and abstinence that mirrored our pivotal clinical studies. And then the other was a health economic exploration that showed in more than 350 patients about a $2,150 near-term cost avoidance for each individual treated reset O patient. And you'll really see us continue to build up that data dossier again in commercial patients. Maybe the last big opportunity here is to directly engage and contract with uh, different payers. Traditionally in the drug world, you would think about an intermediary like a PBM. Because of the data that we have associated with each one of our commercial patients, it puts us in a position where we can do the at-risk contracting and in many cases disintermediate the PBM. And so you've seen us go out and contract with employers directly. You've seen us contract with some commercial payers directly. You've seen us bring in, um, in, in some cases, some uh, PBMs as well. Um, but you'll see a continued drumbeat around direct contracting with some non-traditional groups, um, in some cases for us, like state Medicaid organizations. The point about direct contracting, obviously, you know, that requires kind of a different type of Salesforce model, particularly if you're going to the employer market. Uh, you, you did mention that you are working with PBMs as well. I mean, at the end of the day, is that still, I would still think that that's a pretty efficient way to, to get to the market, you know, through coverage by big PBMs. Is, is that, should, should we still look forward, forward to that? And, you know, particularly you'd want, you know, to be on formulary it can be a big importance, right? Because it could be, you know, the preferred therapeutic in a class and, you know, really directs patients to something. Yes, and, and uh, I think you'll see some exciting PBM news uh, coming from us um, in the next couple months. You know, I, I think that's the end state, which is where you have these prescription digital therapeutic formularies, which ultimately streamline coverage to get from the manufacturer through to the end payer. I think we're in a little bit of an early state there where we have health and wellness products that are being pushed as uh, buy-ups to self-insured employers. And I think that's sort of, that, that's the beginning um, of PBM's involvement, but certainly we're, we're really excited about PBM's creating coverage infrastructure for prescription digital therapeutics, frankly. Do you see that there's a, an understanding, particularly at the PBM level, because you would think with you know, their experience with PNT committees, understanding and looking at the efficacy of products that they're, they're recognizing the differences in digital products themselves. I know at the beginning, maybe they were trying to provide some access to it. If you look at like the, the Express Scripts digital formulary when it first came out, are you starting to see a, a greater maybe savviness maybe in, uh, in understanding the differences? Highly varies uh, PBM to PBM, but we are seeing an evolution in the understanding of the industry. I think if you look at you know, some of the more recent PBM surveys, there tends to be a dramatically increased understanding of, um, of PDTs. And, and again, you know, I think if you look at the work that we've done 
uh, with some more forward-thinking PBMs. I think that there's ample evidence that says that they get it, and that will be a part of the story that we continue to advance throughout 2021. Right. So, you know, um, I know you have an extensive pipeline beyond the three products that we talked about. Any that you'd like to share that you're really excited about uh, that's coming around here? I know you mentioned a, a fourth and fifth coming down the road. When we When we think about what gets us most excited on the pipeline side, it's really pipeline scale and the ability to be able to develop new assets via exactly the same infrastructure that we've built previously. So I think that's sort of the the theme that is most interesting for us. As I think about what gets me personally most interested, it's really the ability for these products to become more complex and more tailored to individual patients. And so to that end, we've been, been rolling up different digital biomarkers looking across a whole host of different axes to be able to do digital phenotyping, ultimately to direct digital therapeutic content, as well as pharmaceutical drug dosing. So it's really sort of watching each one of these products evolve into places where, you know, these are no longer thought of as apps, but they're thought of as really sort of complex and sophisticated first-line medical treatments. And, uh, you know, maybe just to close out here, you, you mentioned before uh, there could be some uh, interesting announcements coming in the next few months. Any, any other milestones that we should be looking out for the next year or so as we, as we think about the progress uh, pairs making? You know, you'll see continued reimbursement milestones for sure. And because of the nature of the opiate-dependent population, you'll see some of these coverage decisions coming from state fee-for-service and MCO organizations. I mean, Medicaid is just unbelievably important for us as a business, and it's important to be able to scale, reset, and reset out to patients that need it. You'll see some large commercial insurers uh, jumping on board, and you'll see that by and large because of a continued drumbeat of real-world data. So we're really excited about some of the long-term data that's emerging. We're exciting about, excited about some of the real-world registries we've been running where we're comparing patients on product to patients who are in a control condition. And then we're starting to see, uh, in some cases, some really innovative use cases, like in an ED step down, really going to some of the patients who are uh, really costliest and in most need of acute support. So you'll see that data driving coverage. You'll see that coverage driving increased script volume. And like I said, you'll see really a robustness come of our offerings uh, across the pipeline. You roll all that together and we're excited. We think this is the year that PDT has become first line standard of care. And uh, I guess I would just encourage you to stay tuned. So uh, I think we'll end it there. You know, Corey, thank, thanks so much for joining us. Really enjoyed the discussion. You know, it sounds like a lot of things are happening at PAIR and, and we really look forward to, uh, to watching the progress and um, you know, seeing the growth of this, uh, this sector. Me always a pleasure, and I hope the next time we do this, we get the opportunity to do it face to face. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. So, uh, thanks, Corey, uh, and thanks everyone for listening to this uh, episode. And I look forward to having you join us on uh, on a future Cowan uh, Future Health podcast. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.